Pastor Xavier Reese on the meaning of true humility. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He took on the form of a servant. Being God, he became man. But the key is, he never uses his attributes, his power of God for himself. To give you and myself an example of the potential and possibility of walking to please God in obedience. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The quest for self-confidence and esteem seem to be a necessary pursuit of today's culture. But how does that compare with what the Word of God teaches? Today, from his continued study in the New Testament book of Philippians, Pastor Xavier explores the path you must take in order to truly see God. Let's join him in chapter 2 for today's Simple Truths. The title of the message is An Embarrassing Lesson on Humility. If you have lived long enough, you have learned that if you do not walk humble in life, life will humble you more than once. Paul has just been sharing with the Philippians how there were those of party spirit present at Rome in chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. Some were preaching out of contention for selfish ambitions, hoping to add afflictions, others because they love Christ. He also mentioned that they were to strive together for the faith of the gospel in their persecution in chapter 1, verse 27. He will point out in his last chapter two women who were not getting along. They were at odds with each other. Yodi and Syntyche, and he exhorts them to be of the same mind in the Lord, chapter 4, verse 2. It seems that the Philippians had a problem with unity. I've never seen it as distinct as I have this time as I've studied the book, but it's from the beginning to the end. Yes, the epistle is the epistle of joy, but the focus of the joy is that Paul magnifies joy in the submission that he puts himself to in humility. In contrast to the Philippians, Paul has just exhorted the Philippians in verses 1 through 4 to seek unity and humility of mind for the purpose of looking beyond one's own interest to the interests of others. So his exhortation is in view of their persecution. Each believer having the potential to allow the Spirit of God to make them like-minded as Christ able to yield to the same love, be of one accord, of one mind, in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than themselves, and looking to the interests of others and not just to their own interests. They were to do it in order to comfort one another in their sufferings after the model and conduct of Christ. We are not the ones who in fact comfort or encourage people but it is the Holy Spirit through us we have to keep that in mind that if it wasn't for the grace of God the Spirit of God we would be miserable comforters <laughs> physicians of no value like Joe's friends now all was for the unity of the church which the Holy Spirit of God is attempting to bring about through each person in the body as much as 
he was in the church at Philippi. So the best way to see unity in the church is to stay out of the way the Holy Spirit's work <laughs> and to walk in the Spirit. The Philippians were not to be acting carnal through their pride, their selfish ambitions or conceit, but rather seeing others through the eyes, the mind, and the heart of Christ. And that's exactly what he's called you and myself to be. Therefore, Paul gives a command in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the word mind means to think or to be mindful of others just like Christ did. Notice verse 5. It is a transitional verse. It looks back to the exhortation of verse 2 through 4, as well as looking forward to the illustration of Christ on how he manifested his humility of mind in the incarnation, a supreme example of unselfish humility. What kind of mind is Paul commanding the believers to be constantly living under and to have? The mind that is motivated, first of all, by love. Also, the mind that humbly looks out for the interests of others, not just their own. And then the mind that is esteeming others better than themselves. This is the mind of Christ. And for that reason, Paul commands the Philippians to think like Christ towards others by giving them a threefold description of Christ's humility of mind for the service of others in verses 5 through 8. Let me read the text. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The threefold description of Christ's humility of mind in the service for others is as follows. First, the greatness of Christ's humility in verse 6. Secondly, the extent of Christ's humility in verse 7. And then the depth of Christ's humility. The greatness, the extent, and the depth. Let's begin here with the greatness of Christ's humility. Here we have Christ in the incarnation, verse 6. Notice first the greatness of Christ's humility was that he was God, who being in the form of God, the personal pronoun who refers to Jesus Christ in the previous verse. You know the title Christ means anointed, the Messiah. That person that was prophesied in the Old Testament to come. And the name Jesus identifies his humanity. So you have a twofold identification here. Christ, the anointed, his deity. Jesus, his human name, identifying his humanity. And you know that the name means Jehovah's salvation. You have God, man. Don't forget that from the very title that he gives. Now notice a particular word being. In the Greek it describes what's called an antecedent condition. It carries over into the present. In other words, 
What he was before he came was God. When he was here, he was God. And when he left, he was God. There's nothing else you can be when you're God. You can't stop being God. Being in the form of God. It refers to the inner essential and abiding nature of his person, the essential attributes and character, not the physical shape. In other words, in a human body was God. You couldn't see God, but everything that God was was within the body that Jesus occupied. We know that Jesus told the woman of Samaria that God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth in John 4, 24. So we know God doesn't have a body. Now the Mormons declare that God is a body. He's Adam glorified to be God. And they use texts, you know, that the body speaks about body and this and that about God, and they go to the Old Testament. But if you go to the Old Testament, you also say that you are to go under the, be under the, the wing of, of, uh, of God, a protective wing. Is he a chicken now? So you have to be careful. Make sure that you don't get carried away and you interpret Scripture wrong. God has no body. He's a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus was the answer to Isaiah's prayer. Have you ever read Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64.1? All that you would rent the heavens and come down. God did. He tore the heavens open and he came down in Jesus. Micah says that Jesus was from everlasting to everlasting, the vanishing point to the vanishing point, Micah 5.2. Preexistent, eternal. Always was. The very words of Jesus, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad in John 8, 56 and 58. The Jews said, well, you're not only 50 years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. He wasn't talking about his physical being. He was talking about how he spoke, what he did, the love that he had, and how he dealt with man. Have you ever thought that there's no pictures of Jesus? Nobody ever chiseled out a, a carving of Jesus, wood, marble, or anything else? All those things that we have came centuries afterwards, but not in his lifetime that we know of. We have nothing. Because God can't be chiseled out. He can't be drawn. The tabernacle is a perfect picture of the incarnation. As you know, the outward tabernacle was made of... Um, Badger skin, rough, rugged, no beauty in it. That's the physical body. But inside the holy place and the holy of holies, the Shekinah glory was there. The tapestry was of angels and pomegranates, and there was the incense and the ark and the, the mercy seat. What a difference. There it is. Jesus walked around as a man, but inside is the glory of God. Notice, secondly, that the greatness of Christ's humility was that he was God and waved his right as God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word consider means judgment based on fact. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was not confused about the issue. Now, people were. They said, isn't he the son of Mary? Doesn't he have brothers and sisters? Isn't he the carpenter's son? <laughs> but the demon says, hi, Jesus, son of God, how you doing? <laughs> The only one confused about Jesus is man. Demons aren't. Jesus wasn't. Jesus did not consider or account it robbery, meaning a prize or treasure to be retained or held to all at all hazards 
or to clutch greedily. He was not trying to obtain equality. Why? He was God. He didn't have to. He was not trying to hold on to equality for his own benefit, but in fact, he waived his natural right for the sake of lost man. Weiss, the Greek scholar, says this, the only person in the world who had the right to assert his rights waived them. What a slap in the face it is to us in this generation of individual rights. My right, my right. Whether it be party spirit for Mexicans, for blacks, or Orientals, or minorities, or whatever, that we have lost sight of the whole of society. And we're so caught up in individual rights that we've let the body die. Don't let that slip into the church, people. When I look out here, I don't see you as black, white, or anything else. I see you as dirty, rotten sinners who've been saved by grace. You see? And we get so caught up in individualism that we lose the greater benefit of the whole. Ah, Paul is saying, take a lesson from God in humility and interest for others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. A story was told of two brothers who grew up on a farm. One went away to college, earned a law degree, and became a very uh, prominent lawyer in a prominent firm in the state capital. The younger brother, he stayed at home with the family farm, and one day, his brother, the lawyer, came, visited him, and he looked at him and says, why don't you go out and make a name for yourself and hold your head up high in the world like me? The brother pointed and said, you see the field and the wheats out there over there? Look closely. Only the empty-headed stand up. Those that are well-filled always bow low. What a problem we have with empty heads. The wind just kind of takes them up high. The problem of man is that too often he allows his momentary greatness to get in the way of humbling himself before others. Look at Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We are so caught up with self. I've told you often the middle letter of the word sin is I. The other problem with man is that more often than he knows, his greatness is only in his own mind, having no room or desire for humility, being self-deceived. Look at chapter 3. Verse 2 and 3. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worships God in spirit, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. I'll tell you, if you live by the flesh, it will consume you. There is no room for anyone else. And those of you who are single... I hope you're walking in the Spirit because even walking in the Spirit, marriage is a shock. It will reveal to you how carnal you are. But if you're walking 100% beef, you're going to die when you get married because now you have to think of others and share everything you have and nothing is yours. 
the sinful nature of man, his pride, is forever attempting to exalt himself above others, comparing himself to others. Look at chapter 2, verse 29 and 30. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his own life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards others. You see, Paul knew man and Paul knew the Philippians had a problem with humility. And he says, listen, I can already hear your talk about Epaphroditus, that wimpy couldn't hack it. He got all sick and all that. Listen, listen, he didn't even care for himself. He almost died. This is the type of guy you should be esteeming better than yourselves. <laughs> How interesting. The greatness of Christ's humility is evident by the height that he had. He was God, and he waved his right as God. Man, it is an embarrassing lesson on humility, isn't it? <laughs> Secondly, verse 7, the extent of Christ's humility is here. And here we see Christ by the incarnation. First we saw him in the incarnation, now we see him by the incarnation. Notice first, the extent of Christ's humility was that he emptied himself, but made himself of no reputation. The phrase no reputation comes from the Greek word, which means to empty or to make void or neutralize. The question is, of what did Jesus empty himself of. Did he empty himself of his deity? No. Otherwise, his claim to be God and one with the Father would be false and he'd be found a liar. He divested himself of his glory, which he had with the Father before the world was. Remember his prayer in John 17, 5? There's the Lord's prayer. Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. His glory, the rightful glory and visible radiance of who he was, was veiled, much like you and I put on clothes this morning so that we can veil our nakedness. That's what God did. He veiled his glory with a human body. He is the visible form of the invisible God. The word there for image is used for a stamp on a coin in Colossians 1.15 and 2.9. He is the express image of God's person. And the word there, image, is used of an engraver tool and die again in Hebrews 1.3. Now notice, secondly, that the extent of Christ's humility was that he emptied himself in two ways. Don't miss these. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He took on the form of a servant. The word took is in the aorist participle indicating simultaneous action. Being God, he became man. Both at the same time. The word form, again, is the same one as we found in verse 6. The inner essential and abiding nature of the person and character. So here you have God who has veiled his glory through a human body, but he's God nevertheless. But the key is, he never uses his attributes, his power of God for himself. But he depends on the Father and everything, as we will see, to give you and myself an example of the potential and possibility of walking to please God in obedience. 
The character was that of a servant, doulos, bondservant. One who serves by choice. You know the whole concept of the Old Testament. In the seventh year, the slave was released. If he didn't want to go, he would grab his master, tell him he loved him, wanted to serve him for life. And then they would take him to his house, the doorpost with an awl and a hammer, put a hole in his ear, put an earring in it, and he was a bond slave for life. So whenever you saw a man with an earring, he was a bond slave. He didn't have a life of his own. He lived for his master. He did not have a will. He did not have a choice. He lived to exist solely for his master. This is the word right here. Who was he? God. The scriptures are full of the servanthood of Christ. In Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. Isaiah 50, 5 through 6. He opened his, my ear, the bond servant. Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way to chapter 53. The, the, he went as a sheep to the slaughter. He was afflicted for our transgressions. The whole description there. As a servant. But notice, secondly, that he came in the likeness of men. In the likeness means resemblance, a figure or representation identifying real humanity, but yet without sin, not a mere phantom. Because there were those who were called the docetists, which comes from the word docetists to seem. And First John addresses them. They said, well, Jesus was a phantom. He really didn't die on the cross. And he, when he walked in the sand, he didn't leave, leave footsteps. It just appeared that he had a body. Paul says, listen, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. He who says Jesus did not come in the flesh is Antichrist. It's not of God. 1 John 1, 1 and 4, 2. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3 says. In the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. Man has an intellect, emotion, and will. Man has a body and a spirit. The spirit, God gives. And he gives that man that spirit and the ability to live above sin as his spirit comes into us. So we're not mastered by sin nature. He is holy, innocent. Undefiled, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7, 26 says. He's like us, but yet different from us. He made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He took your place, he took my place. Being sinless, he became sin. You see, God's intent was not to appear as God, but as men while being God. What do you think would happen if God would have came down and started walking? Oh, everybody just about, oh, you. They did it. An interesting, uh, this woman, a young woman, disguised herself as an older woman, about 65, 70. And she went out on the streets. I believe New York, or probably New York. But either way, he's find the same thing here. Uh, but people were rude. They were not courteous. They were belligerent. But then when she went out on the good-looking young lady, boy, what a response difference. And that's just the same thing. If God would have come down as God, oh, you know, but he came down as a man. Boy, it reveals our heart, doesn't it? You see, the extent of Christ's humility is evident by the length that he went to, taking on the form of a bondservant in the likeness of man. Pastor Xavier Reese and an example of true humility, a humility that exalts the name of God. 
Now, if you'd like, you can hear this message again online simply by browsing for today's date when you click on the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. We hope you won't miss the continuation of this study on our next broadcast, but if you won't be able to join in, you can pick up your own personal copy of this message as well. The title to ask for is An Embarrassing Lesson on Humility. And be sure you pass on this study to a friend or loved one when you're through. Now, Once again, the title to ask for is An Embarrassing Lesson on Humility, available on CD for just $4. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's important that you mention the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. What glorifies God the most? The answer is coming up on the next edition of Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Don't miss it. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 